Hey, I'm Eric Torenberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with Tyler Willis. Tyler's currently an angel investor and previously was an entrepreneur, formerly CMO of Hired, among other things. In this episode, we talk about balancing identity, personal professional self, goal setting, transparency, imposter syndrome, self-learning, the craft of angel investing and how to get better at it, and much, much more. Tyler has a lot of fascinating things to say, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. All right, here's Tyler. We have so much uh, that we are going to talk about, whether it's about the craft of investing and how you've been doing it for a bunch of years and how you've been, you know, sort of creating a informal, you know, sort of curriculum around it, um, and informal sure. and formal, uh, and then a lots of different sort of personal journey and intellectual uh, stuff uh, that I'm very excited to get into. But I thought first to sort of break the ice uh, before this really gets going, I thought you could you could tell us briefly about your experience in Ballywag. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, that's a good place to start. Um... Uh, that's a story I probably haven't told uh, ever publicly, um, so nothing like just uh, jumping right in the deep end. Uh, so I, two thousand, like I don't know, eight or nine or ten, something like that. Uh, it was early days at Involver. Um, I joined this startup, and I was nineteen or twenty, uh, and was running marketing for like a small unknown startup. Uh, and I followed uh, Keith Raboy on Twitter, uh, and he made some like very sweeping, generalized comment, um, which is kind of his style. Uh, that basically anybody talking to an associate at a venture firm was like completely wasting their time uh, and was an absolute idiot. Um, and I just had one of my best friends in the world financed uh, by starting the discussion with an associate. Um, and you know, that person was not like a super experienced uh, entrepreneur at the time. And so my argument back to him was like, eh, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Like, if you really don't know what you're doing, it's better than nothing, right? Um, and uh, and he like eviscerated me on Twitter. Um, and uh, I think his I think his like direct answer or response was uh, uh, I've raised more money than you'll ever see in your entire life like basically like get down peon uh, and uh, and and I was just like okay this is like hilarious I laughed uh, one of like our biggest advisors at my company at that time emailed my CEO within like ten minutes and was like please tell me this is Tyler like this is the same Tyler that works for you this is amazing. Uh, and then, uh, unluckily Valleywag decided it would be a really funny piece to like pick up and, uh, and write. So they wrote it like, uh, they wrote a paragraph long description of what Keith Raboy's inner, or Keith Raboy's, uh, inner monologue is when he's thinking about Tyler Willis. So it's out there. It's Googleable, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, and you know, my opinion on Keith, like I thought he was smart then, but I think he's like brilliant now. So, uh, my opinion on him has, uh, has not been harmed by, uh, by, by that. Um, but I am now really excited to one day have seen more money than people has raised. That's the best thing my new goal. Do for a for a founder or for an entrepreneur. How I'm actually curious. Yeah, because, exactly. You know, it is funny, but at the same time, you know, uh, it takes a lot of humility to see it as humor, especially as a young person. How do you think? Sure. Uh, and this is something you know I think about a lot. Like, how do you how do you get comfortable with you know not everyone like loving you <laughs> or you know someone like telling you off like that. Yeah, uh, I, I I didn't at the time for sure. Uh, a, um, and it's still something I actually really struggle with now. Um, I think that you know I I think a lot of people look for like um, external validation, right? They want everyone they talk to to like them. They want when they pitch that uh, the idea of their business, they want everyone to say it's an amazing idea. And it's it actually feels like someone's kind of calling your baby ugly 
when they're viewing the world differently than you. Um, and so I would say over the last you know, 10 years or so, I've just really focused on trying to find a good balance between wanting to understand like what my effect is on the world, like being very worried about um, you know, how what I do affects other people and trying to make sure that I'm doing things that I would be happy with and stand by, but not judging whether I'm doing that by whether other people are happy with me. Um, so it's, uh, I don't know, it's a hard struggle. Um, honestly, it's probably one of the bigger things that, that you know, from a personality perspective I struggle with is I think like a lot of people, I want people to like me. Um, uh, and it's, it's been a, like a long journey to get to the point where I'm okay telling people that they're wrong or I disagree or, uh, you know, or even just you know, being okay with the idea that they don't totally agree with what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I notice some, I mean, not to get into a huge macro point, some people talk sort of live their life as a series of like medium posts or Facebook statuses or, or like tweets. Totally. And uh, the less one does that, the less one feels pressure to sort of, you know, live for some sort of external validation. I've, there's, there's a couple of like really good points in that, but I, I would say the biggest part of it is um, uh, the more that you are, the more that you realize that everyone else is presenting like the idealized version of their life to you, um, the, the easier it becomes to say, Hey, you know, other people are like, like basically, yes, that person's Facebook feed looks amazing, but it's not actually like they're living that life. You know, they're, they have hardship going on too. And they have, you know, maybe family members that are sick or jobs that aren't going well or whatever it is. And they just generally don't post about that stuff. Yeah. You know, actually one of the things like I've tried to do over the last two years is just post more of that shit. Like just how can I be more public about my fears or concerns or, worries uh and sometimes it works out i'm sure some people think i'm like completely terrible for it but i even had somebody like a month ago say hey i really respect the fact that you're like willing to go back on your opinions or willing to say you were wrong or things like that and so i think the good people you know appreciate it is there anything you've been posted that has had uh that you've gone too far or that has had like a really strong reaction that made you think or any like specific stat, uh, you know thing that comes to mind Occasionally, I've been guilty, especially in the kind of early days of trying to be more vulnerable, um, of using it as a way of basically outsourcing my worries. So I would just like dump everything into like, okay, well, if it's like in the world, like now you guys worry about it and I don't have to. Uh, and I don't think that's super helpful. Um, uh, and it's more just that I think like you're training people at that point to not care. Um, and it's kind of a, you're being like overly dramatic. Um, but honestly, I haven't like the world is ending type stuff not really the world's ending like just personal like neuroses right like I'll, in fact i'll give you a perfect example um you know these types of things like anything i'm doing live always makes me incredibly nervous mm-hmm. uh it's just like one of those like i have this like yeah i've been public living my life in public for like a decade uh you know i've been like yeah i host parties i host events i do a lot of things that like revolve around interacting with other people um and every time i do that i have this like gut fear of like, I'm throwing a party and no one's going to show up. Yeah. Uh, and like, it doesn't matter that I know that it's not the case. Like it's still a gut fear. Um, but when I posted on Facebook, like yesterday, Hey, I'm doing this thing on product hunt. I uh, would love if anybody can come, you know, I didn't write the like, Hey, I'm super, you know, like I, like I didn't like go overboard and saying I'm super nervous or, you know, like this is like the whole you know paragraph long missive of like what my backstory is. Instead, I just said, like, hey, I'd love to have some friends there, be, like, friendly faces. It'd be cool to know that people are going to show up, right? Like, I was open about what I was thinking about, but I didn't, like, defend it with, like, my, 
hey, here's like my page of like, so you know my full backstory. Because um, I think that's just too much. People don't care. Yeah, I haven't had a genuine feeling in like five years. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's good to know that the robots uh, or the OSs are getting really good. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So um, let's get back to Keith for a second. We were talking earlier, you know, offline about uh, goal balance and goal uh, and this concept that Keith has that, that you're really drawn to. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so one of the better things that I think Keith uh, has kind of done or put out there and he's put out a lot of good stuff is he did a talk on how to operate. And it's basically like the handbook of how to be a COO. Um, and I think it's Googleable. Like he did the talk a couple times. Um, I think he maybe even did it for Y Combinator's uh, startup school, how to start a startup. Um, and basically the concept is, you know, he, what he wants to do is give people like a core driving goal, one thing that's just like overarching what they care about. Um, so, you know, your job this quarter is to grow the number of customers that are trying our product or to, you know, lower the costs of, you know, serving an individual customer or whatever else. But the, when you give somebody that clear of a directive, there's a risk of like local optimization. And so what you want to do is identify what's the most likely thing they're going to they're going to use to kind of um, game that first goal. Um, and you want to make sure that you're not letting them decrease that. So you have something that you say, like this metric I want to keep. Uh, very stable, and this other metric I want you to grow, right, or decrease. Um, so, for example, you know, number of customers trying the product, but I want the conversion rate to stay the same, or um, you know, uh, lowering costs of serving an individual customer, but I want customer satisfaction to stay the same, right? Um, and so, I think in a business context, this works really well. Um, it's something. It's probably one of the few. Uh, it's now like one of the better tricks that I kind of use when I'm trying to think about how to improve a business or how to operate. Um, but it also, I, I, I find you can kind of apply it to different parts of life as well, right? Where if you have a goal for yourself, so for example, part of the discussion we were having, we can get into it if you want to, um, was around what are the goals that you have in life? Um, and I would say my goal is, my primary goal used to be ambition. It's like be the best in the world at something. Um, and it's morphed into more success or sorry, like happiness. Um, and instead of ambition being... Happiness is defined by like quality of life, quality of relationships, um, feeling of making a good impact in the world, um, self-confidence, self, you know, like just liking who I am, living my own life, not feeling like I'm comparing like the recent, you know, whatever, whoever got the cover of Fortune this month, like I'm comparing my, my goals against them. Um, and I would say that that's, you know, initially when I started thinking about, hey, I want to be, I don't want to be an unbalanced success. I don't want to be successful and unhappy. Happiness was maybe my secondary goal. And now I would say happiness is like my primary goal, but I don't want to lose the ambition. Like the ambition is my balance, right? So um, I want to make sure that I'm still succeeding professionally and doing things that I care about and are interested in. But I want to make sure that kind of stays the same while I also improve my relationships in the world and self-knowledge and all that stuff. How you feel about your past actions or how you're feeling in the moment is it feeling oriented? You know, I'm actually very, because a lot of people mean different things. Yeah, um, it is feeling oriented, but I think it's better to look back at kind of larger blocks of time than like, how do I feel right now? Um, and it's, you know, an idea of, am I excited about the person that I've become? Do I, you know, do I like the relationships I'm in? Do I feel like I'm being helpful to the people around me, a good part of my community? Um, you know, and, and then there is some of it as well, of like looking forward, like, you know, 40 years from now, do I think I'll have been a, on the right side of history? Like, am I doing, uh, am I, am I doing good things? Am I fighting for good causes, not just existing? So uh, I remember Naval told me a while back that he, uh, I don't know if he still does this, but sort of separates his personal and professional a little bit. 
or that could have been his nice way of, 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 uh, of not meeting with me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's been fantastic. And he did meet with me, but, uh, I'm curious if, uh, how have you thought about, especially when you're investing a lot of, you know, uh, Kanye's, you know, message last night to, you know, that he tweeted about advice to VCs said that relationships become transactional. Um, and so how has that evolved and how have you thought about that in the context of yours? Yeah. You know, it's something I struggle with right now. Um, to be really honest, I think, uh, I'd like to tell you, I figured out the answer. I haven't, um, I think that there, it's really challenging as in, in what I'm doing because I didn't go to college, right? I dropped out of college like very early on. Um, most of my life has been spent, you know, at least most of my like adult life has been spent in the context of work. So a lot of my friends are like also from my professional life. Um, I'd say there's two, there's kind of two people that I look to as of given, having given me good advice on this. Um, one is Danielle Morrill, who said that like one of the things that she, I interviewed her for, uh, for something, for a podcast I was doing. Um, and one of the things she said is that she's actually explicitly seen a CEO coach of trying to look at it and say, I don't want there to be two separate me's. It, it, like it feels schizophrenic. And so I need to find ways to kind of uh, align those two things and make sure that I'm just always me, right? Um, and she does an excellent job of that. Uh, and then on the other end, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that say you should have, um, you know, good friends outside of work. You should have, uh, you know, good relationships with people who are not just kind of professional. And you should have actually like a good balance between your professional and your personal life. Um, so that if things are, you know, broken in your professional life, you're in a job you don't like, or you make a mistake or whatever, like, you know, lose, lose a bunch of money on something. Um, it, you, you, it doesn't like, it's not all encompassing. It's not the only thing that's going on in your life. Um, and you can still be like a, a good contributing member of the community outside of just a really narrow, uh, context. Um, so I don't know, I still struggle with it, honestly, but my, my hope is that I'm just, you know, authentic enough with who I am in every context that I can kind of uh, shift between contexts relatively fluidly. Um, and then I would say I'm looking right now, you know, just to be very candid at like all of my friends and say like, okay, who are the folks that, you know, I, I honestly have a really deep authentic relationship and I can call friends. Um, and who are the folks that are really more like acquaintances at this point that I can build better relationships with, or maybe I just want that to be a professional relationship. Um, and I think that was something I would, you know, I wouldn't have been comfortable looking at even, uh, you know, five or six years ago. Um, it just would have felt like, uh, you know, Silicon Valley overuses the word friend, right? Like you I have a proper I, term for acquaintance because it's like, here's my, yeah. my, you know, I'd love to introduce you to my acquaintance. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I've literally like, at a, I've at a party, like at 23 or 24 said, hey, you should meet my friend. Uh, what, what's your name again? Like, I just met him five minutes ago, right? Um, and so like, we need a better word for that. But <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. what It's it like, we go way back. We were CC'd on an email like three months ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It, it is interesting. I actually, I have a post about this that, that is going to come out at some point. <laughs> um, so I'm interested, you know, you have done a ton of research. Uh, so first off, you started investing in 2012 in uh, how many companies total? Yeah. Uh, total all in right now, it's probably a little over 30. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yep. Over 30 companies. Like uh, you've, you've taught a course on investing. Um, you've really approached sort of the craft of investing from a variety of different angles. You're now starting a podcast with AngelList. I just yeah. heard the episode with Rick this morning. It was fantastic. Uh, and a all bunch right. of others coming. Um, but here's what I really want to know is in all of your years of research, what have you sort of put together? And, you know, I know there's a silver bullet, but just talk a little bit about what separates the best yeah. from the good. Sure. Um, I think the number one thing that separates it is commitment over a long period of time. Um, the feedback cycles are really, really long. 
Um, it takes a long time to get good. It takes a long time to learn the lessons. It takes a long time to know if you're any good. Um, so I think a lot of it is that. Um, Keith had a really good tweet actually a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday, that was um, talking about the only competitive advantages you can build, like long-term assets you can build, are proprietary networks of people um, who you know, and specifically around that, what kind of information that, that I, this is now me interpreting it, what kind of information you can get from that, right? So um, I think proprietary deal flow is dying. That used to be kind of the name of the game for VC, and I think it's getting less important. Um, but the proprietary access to information is more important than it ever was. You know, you think about, for example, the, uh, um, the big crazy investment in Facebook, like early on, uh, that, uh, that DST made was fundamentally because Yuri Milner had done a bunch of modeling about, um, uh, social networks and, and revenue rates and just could tell that this was an undervalued asset. Right. Um, and so he was able to kind of splash the pot and go bigger than any other VC was willing to, to, to go and make a huge, you know, pile of cash, uh, in return for that. Um, so proprietary information is just really, really helpful. What about, uh, how do people have proprietary networks? Like what is, what is, uh, what would that look like? Um, who you know, who you've worked with, uh, who trusts you, who thinks of you as like an interesting sparring partner um, and wants to share ideas with you early. What's um, the proprietary there? Because you know, no one is exclusive to one person. I, well, proprietary would be, it's not, yeah, that, okay, that's fair. Um, but the network would be proprietary to you, right? Um, so in, in terms of like the, the group of people that you surround yourself with professionally, that you interact with professionally, that you kind of get ideas from, um, that group is unique to you uh, as an individual. Um, the things that it's very hard to imagine that you could say, replicate everything of so-and-so. Like, this is why there's no true kind of like next generation great when you look at like entrepreneurs or venture capitalists. The next person is always different than the, than the person that came before them. Um, because they're coming from a totally different base of ideas and people and experiences. Um, and so that, from that perspective, the network is proprietary. It's not like, oh, I know Eric and Eric doesn't know anyone. Um, it's more like I have really good discussions with Eric and we go into depth about certain topics. And maybe because of that, I have a better understanding of, you know, community or I have a better understanding of, uh, you know, in a certain type of investment opportunity. Um, and combined with three or four other conversations I'm having, that gives me a unique insight that other investors can't go deep on. Or don't have the same insight on. They, first off, they commit to it over a long period of time. They are heavily well networked, um, and you know have access to information as well. What else do you know? Are, are you seeing, or, or what's something that you didn't see immediately that you learned over your you know, sort of years of? Yeah, you know, I, I think the most that that kind of long long game frame of mind was the most surprising bit. Um, I knew a little bit going in, but I had no idea as how true it was. A lot of people try this for a year or two or three and then just kind of duck out. And I think it's one of those things where if you don't plan on doing it for 20 or 30 years, you shouldn't do it once um, because it just takes that long to get good at it. Um, and you're really kind of building on this like compounding experience in history. I, I think that's the most surprising bit. Um, the rest of it is all very personal. You know, I have some people... You know, I interviewed guys on the show like uh, Kirill Makarinsky and Suman Sadu, who, both of whom I love and think are amazing investors, um, and uh, both of whom are also very logic-driven, right? Like, here's my methodology, and here's what I look for, and here's what I'm doing, and here's my kind of, you know, thesis of the universe type thing. Um, and then I've interviewed, you know, people uh, like Danielle, actually, who are 
you know, a lot more um, uh, kind of look, in fact, as she puts it, looking for the X factor, right? Like she's kind of intuitively driven um, uh, and then kind of, you know, forms hypotheses based on that that she can test, but, um, but is first and foremost looking for what's the person who just feels that, you know, the, the, the most like is going to be a success or is going to do something interesting. Um, and I think either can work. I really like, uh, uh, I like variety. So I like being able to kind of hop from intellectual challenge to intellectual challenge and change context a lot. Um, and so investing is a really good way to do that. You can um, be supportive of, uh, of entrepreneurs and that are doing amazing things and help them, uh, but ultimately be a little, just kind of along for the ride a little bit. Um, and we could talk more about what value VCs really add. Um, but, uh, but basically you can kind of get uh, a chance to switch context a lot and think about lots of new and interesting problems. Um, so I like that part of my job, you know, investing, angel investing is, um, really a way of adding that into, you know, my life at a, at an earlier stage than I, you know, than one would normally go pro as a VC. Um, and I still like operating and I'm not ready to go pro yet, but I think ultimately, you know, my goal would be to be a professional investor and. Um, getting started early is uh, uh, is a good way of starting to get some experience, but then also starting to get to reap some of the rewards of like thinking about fun problems more more actively. Uh, but as you think about whether you want to be a, a seed investor or an A or, or late stage, uh, do you have a sort of sweet spot? No, I've uh, completely stage agnostic. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, I think the stage distinction is actually um, a little bit less important than people make it out to be. Um, at the later stage, you have to be a little bit more metrics driven. At the earlier stage, you have to be a little bit better at, uh, you know, uh, looking through the crystal ball and, and, you know, predicting whether something will work or not. It's a little bit more faith based. Um, but I've written checks into billion dollar plus companies. Um, I've written checks into, I've been literally the first check into something of a pre-product, you know, uh, you know, week old company. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to play. At different stages, I think the strategies change a little bit, but um, not not as dramatically as people think. Uh, you know, I had a friend who put a, a check into a, a billion dollar company as well, and I, I he, he called it brilliant hindsight. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. But uh, exactly. also on that term, like uh, on the investing front, um, what do you? We were just talking about value that VCs add. Uh, you know, it's also it's well known that a lot of them don't add value. You know, where who who. In what ways do, do they add value and what ways do they not add value? In um, so I, I like Kosla's aggressive statement on this, which is 70% uh, add negative value. Um, and I think that's actually really true. Um, as VCs, you have, uh, uh, oftentimes you have a uh, large amount of power and you can do things that are very disruptive to a company. Um, you know, you can fire CEOs or argue really aggressively for the company to change the strategy or, um, you know, uh, there's an old management, uh, kind of saying of dip, don't skip, right? Like understand what's happening at the different layers of the organization, but don't skip over the people that you're putting in power to, to kind of manage. Um, and I've, you know, VCs can go in and talk to VPs or, or directors and like change their direction and, uh, you know, like give them direct feedback that is counter to what CEOs are saying. Like there's a lot of ways that VCs can be really disruptive and painful, um, and so I think picking the right VCs to work with is really important um, and establishing a high quality working relationship with them is really important. Um, but those, those are the types of things that I, uh, that I, yeah, I think a lot of VCs add kind of negative value in terms of positive value. There are plenty of folks that again, can 
kind of act as good sparring partners on ideas, but then know when to kind of seed, right? Know when to say, hey, you know, this is your, you know, ultimately your your decision to make. Um, you know, they know when to, you know, when to exercise that kind of uh, nuclear bomb power of like replace the CEO or not. And I think a lot of people are trigger happy on that. Um, that's one of the riskiest things a company can do. And so it's, uh, uh, it's you know, it's scary to pull the trigger on that. I think a lot of VCs uh, pull the trigger on that too early. Um, but there are, there are cases where you need somebody to come in and, and fix something broken. So uh, I think those are the types of kind of positive values that people can add is thinking about the long term and, uh, and acting as a good kind of, um, uh, you know, idea trade and challenger for the CEO. How much of, uh, of what a VC does or what a great VC does is picking the right companies versus uh, getting into the right, like, or getting all the, co- the companies to come to you and getting into them in the first place? Yeah, I, I, today, I think it's almost exclusively picking. Um, the, the sourcing argument, again, like this whole idea of proprietary deal flow, um, there is an element of that, uh, but it's, it's a lot less than it was 10 years ago. Um, I think now the trick is, uh, is not just picking, but then also earning your way into the deal. So whether that's marketing or, um, you know, developing a good reputation for being founder friendly, I think you can look at Andreessen Horowitz as like a case study for doing this really well. Um, you know, build a brand, get in, um, you know, kind of earn your, earn your way into the deal. Um, that's the hard part. Earning is probably more important than picking, to be very honest. Um, uh, there is an element of picking that is important, but the vast majority of returns in VC are driven by not the first person to make the decision uh, or the first person to believe in the company, but rather by the person who can get in once it's clear that the company's made progress and, and looks to be a safe bet, right? Um, or at least a good bet. You were starting a seed fund today, uh, or seed, or even Series A, and you had to compete with, you know, Andreessen and First Round and Greylock and all these big names. Uh yeah, I, I think if you okay, so if you're playing as a uh, an individual investor, it's different, right? Because you're you're investing smaller checks, you can you know, be part of a round, right? And there you've got a little bit. You know, it's easier to earn your way in a little bit. Um, if you're trying to fight for the major allocation in a company, right? You're you know trying to uh, start a Series A fund that is going to you know go head to head and try to win deals against Sequoia and Benchmark and all those guys. Um, if you don't have a credible plan of how you're going to be like the top five or 10 in a very short period amount of time, like a very short period of time. Think about Andreessen Horowitz went from like not existing to an incredibly well-known firm in like 18 months. That just unparalleled because it's Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. It's no, it's going to be different every time. Right. So like it's, it's whatever your competitive advantage is, right. Mark and Ben have their proprietary networks and like reputations, right. Their brand. And then what they did was they found a way to use a thing that other that other VCs hadn't been using to excel, content marketing, right? They did an incredible amount of content marketing. They did a great job with it. Um, Your skills and competitive. Yeah, today I wouldn't start one. Um, I don't. I don't think I have a credible path to compete against uh, you know Sequoia or Andreessen. I'd much rather invest with them. Um, now that said, uh, you know, I, I actually maybe the lesson to learn from this is I think most of these these venture firms are actually way undervalued, right? So, you know, you think of, um, uh, you know, hey, how much better is Sequoia than like random name you've never heard of? Or how much better is uh, is Kosla or Benchmark or Andreessen or uh, or Trinity? I like folks at Trinity. Like 
there's you know, how much better are those guys than like the person you've never heard of? You might say like, oh, they're three X better, which seems like a huge amount. They're probably more like 30 or 40 X better, right? Um, and so it's just a, uh, I think it's a, a, just a, a common misunderstanding. Like people don't understand how hard it is to be the top five or 10 in the world. Um, and in this business, it's all power law driven. So if you're not top five or 10, you probably shouldn't be, you know, competing with the top five or 10. You're probably going to lose. Angel invest, you know, assuming, assuming they have in, strong interest, when should they, and when should they not sort of, and not even, not in specific companies, but just as in general, start doing it. Sure. Um, I think when you have enough disposable income that uh, you're not going to miss any of the capital that you're putting at risk um, and you're ready to start taking it like reasonably seriously, i.e. you're going to invest in 10 to 15 companies. It's not like a one-off that you're going to do um, and see how it goes. Um, I think that's the right time to start investing, but um, that could be when you're 40. It could be when you're 20. It's like totally variable based on person. Um, I'll, I think there's a big uh, kind of uh, bifurcation between people that do it while they're operating and people that wait until they're done operating to do it. Um, and again, there are like huge success stories on both sides. Um, I really like Chris Dixon's uh, you know story of being both an operator and like he raised his own seed fund as like a $40 million fund while he was operating a company. Um, so I think there, I think you can do any of those things. There's not like a one size fits all, but I'd say the biggest part of it is you're not going to miss the money. So it's not going to be scary. You're not like putting, you know, money that you need at risk. Um, and you're ready to take it seriously. Those are the two big criteria. Uh, you mentioned Chris Dixon uh, offline gave you uh, one of the best advice that you've heard in investing. Yeah. So, uh, Chris Dixon's advice, uh, to, you know, succeed as an, as an investor is to focus on leveling up. It's basically like play it like a video game. Um, and so you, when you're first starting out, you can't get into every deal. I mean, like even now a couple of years in and, you know, moderately good profile and some good success stories and entrepreneurs that like working with me, you know, I, I got cut out of a deal like, you know, two months ago. Right. Um, and so this happens to you basically when you start investing, you're not going to get into the hottest deals. So what you should do is get into the best deals that you can and then work your butt off to, to develop a good reputation. And then when you can't get into the next deal, you say, talk to these three entrepreneurs that I just worked with and they'll tell you how, uh, you know, how successful it is. Um, and, uh, or how good it is to work with Tyler, how good it is to like have him on board. And maybe that earns your way into the deal. And so I think, you know, focusing on this idea of you start at wherever you start and then it's putting in the hard work to get, you know, consistently better, consistently better, consistently better. And then realizing that there's never an end level, right? There's always, there's never like, okay, you've mastered it. You know, Sequoia and Benchmark fight over deals right now, right? Um, so. What have you learned is your biggest value add that, you know, your 30 startups come to you most often? Is it, is it customers? Is it uh, hiring? Is it helping with fundraising? Is it uh, just founder advice, psychology? Is it all of the above? Yeah, it's, it's funny. About uh, an hour before this interview, actually, I was on, I was on the phone with a company uh, and he, he used a line that I like, which is, um, hey, I need, I need to borrow you as like VP of common sense, right? Um, which is just like, I need to run something by you. I need to bat an idea by you. And it might be a partnership deal. It might be a marketing specific question because I've run departments for both of those functions um, in the past. So I've got more applicable like domain knowledge um, or it might be something totally different, right? Like, hey, we, uh, you know, we got into YC, but we're not sure we should accept it. You know, can I role play the, the scenario with you? Or, um, 
you know, we, uh, uh, you know, we've got a big um, hire that we're trying to make, but we're not, we think, we think he's good, but we're not positive. He's good. We think maybe, you know, should we hire him and see, or should we wait three or four months and go, you know, go back to start and try to recruit somebody better. Right. Um, so just, it's, it's whatever problem is keeping the founder up at night. Um, it's just a chance to talk that through with them. Broad, broadly, you've been, you know, teaching yourself investing for a few years now, but sort of self-learning is not a new concept to you. You had this one quote about uh, education. Uh, and it, it, do you remember, do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, no. The, uh, let me find it. If you're going to drop out, you need to take serious control of how you learn. Uh, and you have to work harder than you would have in school. Tell me how yeah. you have thought about your self-learning uh, and how you would go back, you know, if you were just dropping out of college now and you had years to learn. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, self-directed learning, I think, has all been, uh, uh, has always been the area that I've kind of gravitated towards, um, partially maybe just because I, I kind of rebelled against uh, general, general school and was not like a good traditional student. Um, but when I decided to drop out, is actually that, that particular piece of advice was something that my dad gave me, said, you know, hey, you've, uh, if you're going to drop out, you can't just go kind of completely consume yourself with startups, right? Uh, you can't just completely consume yourself with your professional life. You should have some sort of, you know, broader awareness of the world. And so what I did was I actually just tried to do two things. One is I became a fairly voracious reader um, where I tried to uh, read a lot of nonfiction and understand, you know, different people's opinions about, you know, different things, read a lot of history, read a lot of biographies, um, you know, and it's, it could be, you know, I read about really varied topics. It could be philosophy. It could be, uh, you know, the case for colonizing Mars, um, or it could be like whatever the, the new Silicon Valley book du jour is, uh, this month. So I try to read a ton. And then the other big thing that I did was I tried to find, um, good lecture series, like where I could go in and, um, kind of take some of the stuff I would have liked to have get in, in college, um, like a broad kind of survey introduction to different. Uh, you know, different topics, um, and just really immerse myself in those. And uh, very early after I dropped out, I found one that I still to this day kind of think of as the best one that I go to, um, which is called The Long Now. It's in, in San Francisco. Um, they probably won't like this description, but it's kind of like somewhere between, uh, uh, you know, um, art project and, and like science fair. Um, it's a nonprofit that is explicitly exists to kind of help humans think on a longer term timescale. Um, and they do all these really amazing projects, everything from building a clock that's supposed to last 10,000 years and uh, the de-extinction project, which is working on bringing back extinct species um, through genetic engineering. So they do these like amazingly weird, cool science stuff, uh, hard science stuff. Um, and then they also do things like host lectures and, uh, and invite people that are, you know, can give you a, a just a, a much different experience of the idea of how time works, right? Maybe it's somebody who's looking at, you know, a thousand years of political evolution or, um, or, you know, theories about how humans have, have evolved and things like that. Um, and so that was a really fascinating kind of early experience. And I still go to those lectures to this day. Yeah. So a lot of books, a lot of immersing yourself in experiences. Um, yeah. if you were designing college from sort of the ground up, if, uh, yeah. if Stanford said, here's the keys to the kingdom, uh, you know, what sort of experience should students have? Uh, the thing that I did that I didn't do early on that I think I would push for is meeting people from very different walks of life. So spending more time with like one of the things I do now that I find really interesting is, you know, spend time with like 
50, 60, 70 year old men and like feel like, you know, what is, what is success to them? Like, what are the things that I should be keeping in the back of my mind? And the not um, I mean, so health is a big one that comes up, right? Like something that you don't think a ton about in your twenties or thirties becomes an incredibly important part of your 50s, 60s or seventies. Um, and so, you know, better eating and, uh, and like, you know, investing more in my health, working out more, uh, is like a, a priority switch that I made after talking to people that didn't have their health. Right. Um, and so that's maybe a, a good example, but, but I would say if you think of those three pillars of meet a lot of people and try to learn what you can from them, um, you know, expose yourself to like weird experiences and ideas, kind of go for like the experiential broad learning. Um, and then read a ton. I, I think those are the three that I, pillars that I would focus on. Um, I have no idea how to solve the core problem of, you know, signaling to the world that you've done hard work. I think that's the reason colleges still exist. And I think somebody will figure out how to, you know, dismantle that. And, uh, and college will really dramatically change in the next five or 10 years. But um, I don't have a good idea of how it'll happen yet. Give it to your 25-year-old self. So that was only like four years ago. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure I have like really deep insights. Um, uh, you know, maybe make the switch to health earlier uh, rather than, you know, enjoying McDonald's once a month. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that may be like the big one for 25. I think at 20, actually, this is one we were kind of talking earlier about things that, um, that, are, that are kind of more unique to my worldview. I think the vast majority of interviews when I talk, when I like listen to the interviews you do, or I listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast, like a lot of people say, a lot of really smart people I respect say, oh, I wish I would tell my, my younger self to like mellow out, right? It doesn't matter as much. You don't have to be so, you know, high strung or hardwired. Um, and I just think that's really bad advice. Um, I, uh, if I could go back in time and tell my 20 year old self, like my, at 20, I was like uh, way too ambitious, way too stressed out you know, like, uh, working all nighters, uh, two or three nights a week, like, um, you know, I was not like living healthy by any stretch of the imagination. But I would go back and tell myself, like, that's good, like, be as ambitious as possible, be as crazy as possible, be as committed to things as you can. Um, I think that that sets the trajectory, um, such that you can kind of, um, you know, step back at 30 or 35 or 25 or 40 or whenever it happens for you. Um, and your your life has kind of a momentum to it that you can then explore some of the deeper parts of life without having to worry about, um, you know, making rent that month or, or, you know, reestablishing yourself in a career or something like that. Um, and so I, that's, that's maybe the, the counterintuitive advice I'd give to a 20 year old me is like, uh, the crazy things that you're doing that are totally unhealthy, like go farther. <laughs> keep doing well, I mean, yeah, as, as you mentioned or allude, it's very uh, easy for a very wealthy person to be like, yeah, just mellow out. <laughs> Relax. Right. <laughs> Huge, huge survivorship bias. Um, and I don't think it's required, by the way. Like, I, I know, in fact, um, uh, one of my family members, like, took four or five years off and just, you know, traveled and, and uh, um, like, didn't, you know, super aggressively pursue a career. And now she has, like, this amazingly awesome career. Uh, and so it's not like a, you have to do this or you're going to be a failure. Um, it's just, in my case, I think it's the, uh, it's the right default, right? Like, if you don't know which way to go, um, you know, the, the default should be stay in school. Like if you know that you want to drop out, drop out. If you don't know which way to go, the default should be work really ambitiously early on. Um, but if you know that you don't have the, the you're not in the right place to do that, then don't do Here's it. Here's a question of, it's sort of about network and momentum theory. If you were to take two years off right now and just go to, in, just two years past and you were just off the face of the earth, you know, you were in India, 
you know, on a monastery or whatever, you were doing something crazy that had nothing to do with that. Yeah. You were, you know, not in contact. You get the point. And you came back. Would your stock fall? Would you be in the same place you were? Or would you, you know, would you be a has been, never was, nobody, you know, what's, what's this concept yeah. of momentum? Yeah. Um, I think it decays. I think your, your network and your momentum decays. I think you can do things that slow the rate of decay. Um, I think actually entrepreneurs have a much lower rate of decay than average. Um, I think if you leave Morgan Stanley for a year and then try to come back, it's actually very difficult. Um, I think if you, as an entrepreneur, you know, you get these natural, like, if you think of it as a game again, like level up, you get natural save points. Um, you know, hey, I, uh, I found it and sold my company. You get like a couple of years before that like decays, right? Um, and it decays much, much more slowly than, than uh, traditional careers. Um, so I think there's, uh, I, I think the, the world that we live in, uh, the kind of career choice that we've made or, or the choice that's made us, as Jay-Z would say, um, is, uh, is I think it's, a, it's an easier place to, to have kind of preserve network or preserve momentum. Who's someone in, uh, in tech that you really, uh, really admire? When you think of someone who's successful in the way that you want to be successful. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is a little weird one, actually. Um, it's Kevin Kelly, um, yeah. who is not like traditional tech. I mean, he's more of an author yeah. uh, than an entrepreneur. But he is founder of Wired Magazine and, and uh, uh, you know, is one of the, the co-founders or at least directors and like early chairs of The Long Now. So he, he's, he's kind of done a bunch of like random stuff that isn't necessarily tech. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily expect to excel in my life this, in the same path that he would. Um, but he strikes me as like very balanced, very happy. Um, he's gotten to work on really interesting things, you know, over a variety of different, uh, kind of, uh, you know, verticals. Um, and so I think of that as being just like really, really successful. He seems very balanced, very happy and, uh, and has gotten to do things that are very ambitious and very interesting. Um, actually his, his career advice that he's given, which I think is like fa just fantastic, probably the best career advice you could take is don't focus on uh, living other people's lives. Like don't find a hero and then go after their path, but rather find the path that works well for you. And he, he learned this at Wired when he would try to find stories. Like he'd identify an idea for a story and he'd try to convince all the writers to do it because he was an editor, he wasn't a writer, right? Um, and then when he couldn't get a writer to do it, it would like sit on the shelf for months. And if he didn't lose interest in it for months, he would finally just write it himself. Uh, and then, and those were like always the best articles that he, that he wrote. They were always like huge hits. Right. Um, and so what he says is like, when you have a really good idea, try to convince everyone else to do it. And if they can't do it and you can't get, you can't divorce the idea from your mind, maybe that's the thing that you're like specifically supposed to do. Um, and I just really like that way of looking at the world. It's like definitely changed the types of opportunities I go after and the types of things I get excited about. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe Kevin's is the perfect answer. Yeah. I wonder if it was very ironic because you know, he says not to follow his path and then you're not following his path, <laughs> but right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But I, uh, I wonder uh, if Kevin had had the idea for like Snapchat or something or for something that made like a billion dollars, if he would yeah. as, as charitable, <laughs> with, with, you know, I think he would, but I think the more important point of that is it's, it's really hard to know at the concept stage, uh, you know, what the potential value of something is. Um, I don't think Evan knew on day one that Snapchat was a billion dollar company. Uh, or $15 billion company or whatever it is today, whatever fidelity market down to, um, uh, which is nonsense. But 
you know, I don't think you, you know, you look at like the interviews, like the first TV interview Mark Zuckerberg did was not the big broad vision of Facebook. And this is going to be worth 300 million, $300 billion. Um, so I think it's hard to know early on. And I, I suspect that even if you gave somebody a perfect crystal ball, I think Kevin would still say, you know, it's, I'm, I'm happier having done, made, having made unique contributions to the world than having just made money. You know, I like the idea of money is, uh, it's like gas, right? You need, if you're driving across country, you need to stop at gas stations, but you know, it's not a tour of gas stations. You're driving across country to have other experiences. And I think life's kind of like that. Yeah, definitely. You could be like impressive. You could be interesting. You could be kind. Uh, I mean, Kevin Kelly is all three. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, I, you know, I think of a guy who started Burning Man who has probably more influence than most billionaires, um, but has very little money. Right. I just had uh, Terry Gross just came on the podcast and she, um, you know, the joke that Stephen Colbert asked her was, you know, when do you cash in? Because she's still, you know, doing the same job she's been doing for four years at public radio. And yeah, there are various different ways to have influence if you want to have influence and there are lots of different ways to live an interesting life. Right. Um, how do, what's something you used to fundamentally believe? Oh, uh, there's a bunch of these. Um, uh, in fact, I think we've probably, I, I may have even talked about some of them earlier on. Um, I know you and I were going back and forth, so I, I actually jotted down a couple of, uh, of notes on this. Um, uh, to go back to the, like the original joke of the start of the podcast. Um, I used to think, I used to think Keith was an out of touch asshole. Uh, and now I think he's brilliant. He's like literally one of five people that, uh, I get notified every time they tweet. Um, uh, and just a quick note on that. Uh, also yeah. like very kind and an amazing three point shooter and not to just keep getting on Keith, but it, I think it's, it is interesting when, um, you know, like some people, Kindness isn't uh, exa exactly what you see on people's Twitter feeds or external. Like, right. there's sort of different, and sometimes you can be kind and still tell someone off in a. I don't know. It's kind of a complicated concept I'm getting around. Do you see like, yeah, yeah, kind like kindness is one of. This is actually something that bothers me about California culture. Um, kindness is like not telling somebody that they look great today, and their like ideas are all brilliant, and like. Oh my God, I, you know, I'm so happy for you. Like, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Sometimes kindness is telling you like, Hey, that thing that you did was stupid or that, you know, that idea that you have needs a lot of work, right? Like, um, some of the kindest people in my life are the people that hold my feet to the fire. Um, and those are the people that I trust. And those are the people, those are also, by the way, the people that like, I know I have a really close relationship with, like, those are the people I'll go down to the mat for. Right? Yep. Um, and, uh, and I know they'll go down to the mat for me because it's not, you know, I know that it's not something where it's this really superficial relationship. There's a, uh, like an old joke that in New York, you have to knock on somebody's front door for like three years, but then when they let you in, they're like, throw you the keys to the house and you can use the bedroom whenever you want, whatever else. In California, like you don't even have to knock on the door, you just walk in, but you never make it past the kitchen, right? right? Like you never actually have a real relationship with somebody. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think kindness is, uh, is misguided or at least misdefined by most people. Right. Um, and I agree, by the way, like, I, I think a lot of the, I don't have a close relationship with Keith by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think he's well-respected for a very good reason. And it's not because he blows smoke up people's asses on Twitter. You used to think that startups were moving fast and everyone else was moving to horribly slow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, um, basically I, I had this very arrogant like thing at, at 20 or 25 or yesterday, 
um, of like, you know, every, all these people that I meet are, you know, 25 year old founders, like changing these like dramatically old industries, like completely reshaping the way that we're, you know, doing some core part of our life. You know, you think about all the Facebooks and Ubers and Lyfts and, and, uh, uh, you know, Googles and all these guys of the world, like these guys that are doing these really impressive things. Um, and I basically used to think the rest of the world was kind of a joke. Um, you know, government is slow and like basically needlessly useless, um, uh, really just in the standing in the way of improvement. Um, and, uh, and, you know, old businesses were stodgy and terrible and all these things. Right. Um, and what I've learned actually, I would say from a couple of different ways, um, and one of them actually I credit the long now for of giving me the idea of um, pace layers thinking, which is something that Stuart Brand talks about, which is basically that things happen at different paces. So like fashion happen, like changes every five, you know, five seconds, um, you know, business changes, you know, pretty quickly, commerce changes pretty quickly. Then you get into like politics, which changes maybe every couple hundred years, like governance, um, you know, then you get into culture or um, you know, like philosophy, which changes maybe every couple thousand years and, you know, natural systems, which change, you know, every millennia. Um, and what he kind of has argued, I think very, very uh, persuasively is that the lower something is on that, on that layer, the more important it is, right? Basically like the deeper part of humanity's operating system or the world's operating system it is. And so all the important things happen deep. And in fact, all of the big things that I saw happening in technology we're not the superficial layer of, you know, business, um, but instead we're the, you know, jumping of layers, right? So, you know, Uber becomes something really important because it fundamentally jumps down to like a governance layer or a culture layer. Like it fundamentally rewrites some core way that we were operating. Um, and as it makes that move, it's a huge earthquake because, you know, things don't like changing spots. And the person who was operating that's, uh, you know, holding that spot down here didn't like the idea of being disrupted. Um, and so really any of this kind of concept of like technical disruption is just something important moving down the layers into its kind of rightful place. Um, and, you know, now I look at the stuff that government does and I think there's a lot to be ashamed of and a lot to want to change and a lot to want to improve. But I also look at a lot of the good stuff um, that I think Silicon Valley needlessly ignores. You know, even things that we are annoyed with, like regulatory stuff, um, serves a really important point like consumer protection or um kind of society stability um and there, there's another really good ted talk just to plug the last piece of this is uh um the difference between liberal and conservative mindsets um and that like liberal you know liberal mindsets are focused on the new and oftentimes can lead to insecurity they can get out of balance and conservative mindsets are focused on you know what's tried and true and safe and i think the shift that we see the pull in the the kind of back and forth pull between liberals and conservatives, you know, even today is centered around that very core idea of the answers in the middle. And as humans, we should, you know, we kind of are on different sides of a barbell and we, we have to find the balance between us. Right. Tyler Willis. Fill in the burn. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm going to get so much trouble for this. Um, I, I love, I love Bernie's authenticity. Um, I think a lot of his ideas are uh, directionally accurate. Um, I think they're they're too far out. I think this is a um, clearly a very revolutionary time period, and a lot of people are really angry. Um, and there's primed for change. And I think you can compare Bernie Sanders to uh, uh, you know to Occupy the same way that you can compare Donald Trump or Ted Cruz to uh, um, you know to uh, the Tea Party. 
Like there's just, there's been a, an underlying current of like desire for revolution in society for the last four or five years that I think is dangerous. Um, but I understand why it's happening. Um, that said, in terms of the current race, I, uh, my, my support is behind Hillary. Nice. Are you not concerned about conflict of interest? <laughs> like <laughs> perceived ties to, uh, you know, to big corporations or any numerous sorts of allegations that have been. I'm not. Um, I'm not. I, I think. I think Hillary is more of a political operative than uh, than Bernie Sanders is, or um, uh, maybe even Cruz is. Um, probably not. Probably not more than Trump. I think it is. Right. I, I think it actually is. It's a. It's an ability to get things done. But but look, there's this very frustrating thing that people have when um, when they look at someone who's changed their mind or who doesn't have, um, you know, uh, who doesn't, who doesn't read as authentic. Um, it doesn't maybe have the charisma to pull off, uh, you know, the, the authenticity, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of that, that other, uh, that other people in the race do. Um, and so I, I think there's this big kind of negative on Hillary for that point, but I, I think the fundamental point of it is Hillary knows how to get things done. Um, and does a pretty good job of that. Um, and so that, that's the piece that I'm more excited about, right? It's like, I think that if you put her in the presidency, we would make good forward progress, not perfect progress, but good forward progress. I think the same thing of Obama. And I was, a, I was an Obama supporter and I started as a Republican, um, which is, uh, uh, my, you know, I was a registered Republican when I registered to vote, um, which is probably not something I should admit in Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I've, I've gone the spectrum from, like, hardcore libertarian to uh, not quite hardcore communist. Maybe give me another couple of years. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you typically... Fundamentally, I like, I, I like the ability to execute. Yeah. What about... Um, do you see someone like Sheryl Sandberg or Jeff Weiner or some tech executive running for office in the next 20 years? Yes. Like, 100%. And when, yes. um, uh, winning, I don't know. Um, I think it depends on the person and the context. I can't predict who's going to win this election. I'm sure as hell not going to predict 20 years from now. Um, but uh, uh, I, you know, I think Cheryl could run and do well. I don't know if Jeff. Or I don't know if Jeff has political ambitions, or I don't know Jeff that well. Um, uh, uh, but certainly, you know, like there are a lot of people that have um, you know good experience and frankly want to take you know don't want to myopically focus on tech and instead want to focus more on you know, the larger underlying layer of governance. Um, and I think that, that there's absolutely going to be plenty of good candidates that come out of, you know, what is now becoming a pillar of power in the U.S., right? Um, arguably, Fiorina's already already fits that that uh, that mold. Um, Bloomberg kind of does too. Right. So. Yeah. It is interesting to see what a young class of billionaires will dedicate their time and money to post yeah, running their companies, or in addition to running their companies. Yes, the number of thirty to forty-year-old billionaires that are now starting to think about how do I make a huge impact on the world is awesome. Um, and that used to happen at sixty, and that that impact they made on the world, that legacy was twenty years long. And you look at Gates, who's still you know has made the switch ten years ago and still has lots of time to go. Um, you know, you look at uh, the the path that Zuck is taking with. Yeah, publicly being very philanthropic. I, I think we're, I think that's a huge force for good in our world that um, most people don't talk about. One thing I know you're, you know, friends and follower of uh, Ramit's work. Um, and also yeah. I know you've concentrated like we all have on sort of changing habits. Um, what, what are some that come to mind 
whether it relates to like specific habits to, to do X or to not do X or just little things in psychology that you've focused on trying to, trying to. Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. I think that, you know, being able to reflect on, um, you know, my actions in semi real time has been very helpful. So training myself to kind of like, uh, you know, periodically turn inward and like, look at what I'm doing or, you know, think about what, how my day went or think about decisions that I made and, you know, second guessing them or replaying them in my head without having like the, the Catholic guilt attached to it, um, is, is a good, uh, kind of habit to get into. Um, and I think that's been helpful for me. I think surrounding myself with people that also call me on stuff like that has been, has been helpful to me. Um, yeah, I think about like specific stuff that Ramit, I actually, I pull a lot from Ramit. I think his, uh, I think his work on psychology is super interesting. I think his work on, um, you know, kind of like identifying bugs in your own software and fixing them uh, is really good and really valuable. I think that he shares them with his email list and, and on Twitter and all that stuff is, uh, is fantastic as well. Um, I can't think of like a specific example that I pulled from him. I know we actually talked about a few early on um, before, before the interview. But I can't think of a specific example from him right now. Um, but there have been a bunch that, that have been really helpful. Was the Catholic guilt thing sort of a comment in jest? Or is that something that is actually... Uh, I would say it's very real in my life. Um, uh, I didn't have like a really strong Catholic upbringing. So maybe I'm, I'm overselling it as Catholic guilt. Um, but the, the concept of guilt and feeling guilty, feeling, you know, imposter syndrome type stuff uh has been a like yeah like a core theme throughout my throughout my life come from um i think i think it comes from ambition maybe is like a good way of thinking about it like you know i um i a lot somebody one, one of these guys was like uh uh my, one of my dad's classmates at yale uh like a, i don't know 55 or 60 year old guy um, and he said something like, I used to think that I wasn't good enough or that I was like, um, you know, deficient. And then what I realized was I was just ambitious. Right. Um, like I, there was a, there was a level that I was like, I wasn't happy with, you know, not being really good. Um, and so that led to a lot of like, I'm a fraud. I'm not good enough. I'm not whatever. Um, Ira Glass has a similar thing where he talks about taste. Like there's a, there's a really big gap where, um, you, uh, uh, basically, you know that there are good things in the world because you have good taste, but you have not yet figured out how to make good things. And so there's this like maker's gap when you get started on something where like everything you make is terrible and you know it's terrible because you have like the potential to understand what is Your good. Skills and um, taste. Yeah. And it's just really like it's a, it's a hard, it's like this, you know, a couple of year period of time where he would say, you know, radio producers, like good radio producers give up. Um, because they just, they, they couldn't match their own taste and they weren't comfortable being not as good as they thought they should have been. Um, and I think this is, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors. I think it's more common in this generation than I think it was in the generation prior. Um, I think it's any, any ambitious person faces some element of it. Um, you know, I have, I'm sure I have parts of my, like, you know, uh, upbringing and exposure and experience and, things that didn't feel good enough, you know, being a college dropout and trying to be like successful and stuff is a, is another good, like, I don't have that pillar of, I can lean on being the right guy from the right background or whatever else. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what drives it, but it's, uh, it's definitely something that I fought with for, you know, uh, 15, 20 years. Interesting. Sometimes I'll look at founders 
um, just hypothetically like evaluating whether I think they're going to be, or even trying to hire people or whatever. And I'll ask yeah. uh, myself just sort of on a gut level, like what chip do they have on their shoulder or, or, or how much do they have something to prove? Like sometimes I'll yeah. see someone like, I'll be like, you're too well adjusted. Why do you want to be a CEO? Or you know, why? Like right. you right. seem happy all the time. You, you know, um, what are they trying to prove? I, I think, it, I don't know if that's the correct way to think about it, but just sort of a gut instinct I have there. You know, it's, it's funny. There's, um, I don't want to do the disservice of saying you have to have a chip on your shoulder to be a successful CEO. There's a lot of people that I think don't have chips on their shoulders that are like incredible and awesome. And I think frankly, as a, as a culture, we lionize bad habits um, in a way that we shouldn't. Um, and I think we should hold up people more like, you know, Reed Hoffman or Stuart, Stuart uh, at, at Slack um, as, you know, people who seem to be fairly well adjusted and, uh, uh, and successful. <laughs> um, that, that said, I, I did, I mean, I forget who it was, but I, some investor did tell me once, I've never made money with well-adjusted founders, um, which, I, again, I think that's false. But I do think it's a, it's a stereotype for a reason. Um, because a lot of people that do this do it to prove something to themselves or to the world, right? Especially the big ones, like the people who are, you know, if you think about going super ambitious and crazy at 20, the people who don't, who get to 30 or 40 and don't like step back, you know, and kind of go self-reflective a little bit. I think those folks are especially driven by some demon. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, then it's interesting because you get those people sort of dictating how the world should be one run once they're billionaires. Uh, I think there's an element of it. I, you know, I, again, I think we give billionaires too much power, too much credit. Um, you know, I, I think that they have an, uh, a large influence on the world, um, but I, I don't think they like, you know, there's like a secret cabal where they set the agenda and, uh, and like the world unfolds that way. Um, You're not in the club? Uh, yeah, not yet. Not yet. Trying. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the Illuminati have not gotten me yet. Um, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm like w fully waiting for the, the entertaining like uh, rapper Illuminati like, you know, memes to, to attract me now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I think we give people too much power. Like I, I don't think there's a, um, you know, I don't think that billionaires are like inherently bad or inherently good. I do think actually one thing maybe, and I believe that other people don't, I think the average billionaire is a better citizen today than they were, uh, than the average billionaire of 100 years ago. A lot of them are volunteering to give half their money away. I mean, it's like what Mark just did with forty-five billion dollars is absolutely unparalleled. It's incredible. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, I think all of those things are are driving it. Um, I think it's a it's a massive win for society that we've got you know more more and more wealthy people lining up you know on the on the right side of history. Offline, you're saying we have more visibility into all of the problems that the world has today. We think the world is worse off when, in fact, we're way better off. Yeah, this is so. This is probably one of the one of the more unique hypotheses I have, um, which I kind of often call it the sunlight hypothesis, um, which is basically uh, we are we have like unparalleled transparency in the world today. Um, we get to see all of these, uh, you know, basically we see all the things that are going wrong, right? Like even if you want to take like a microcosm, twenty four hour news or uh, Twitter giving us exposure to like everyone's opinions instead of just the. Uh, the learned elite that, that, that get to write in newspapers. Um, I think we just have a lot more transparency into the world's problems. And that leads most people to believe the world's like going off a cliff, right? Um, we're dying of global warming. Violence is massively increasing. We've got wars and instability everywhere. You know, we're killing each other. There's race riots. There's like, everything is, is terrible. And I think what you, if you actually look at it from a data perspective, on a, most of those, the world is getting better. It's not perfect. We don't live 
in an optimistic, uh, you know, like perfect world. Um, but it's better than it was 50 years ago. And I think that it's this, it's actually kind of a, um, a catch 22 where the more we expose the world's problems, the better the world gets. Um, and, but because the problems are more exposed, the more that we believe uh, the kind of the world is, is ending. And I think that uh, the, the worry that I have is that um, we'll allow kind of a negative uh, self-talk or, or a pessimistic view of the world derail the progress that we're making. Um, but today that engine seems to work of, you know, more information makes us more depressed, but makes the world better. Um, so today it seems to be working. You, know, you read widely across different sort of industries. Out of all the people trying to sort of use their lens to find truth, let's just say, you know, psychologists, sociologists, religious people, uh, novelists, philosophers, which, you know, group of people or which segment uh, most sort of resonates with you as like, oh, I, this lens is what is closest to your version of it's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Um, I think that as a culture, we we value psychology and sociology um, less than we should. Um, I wish we studied more of that. Um, I think uh, I have a I have a deep kind of personal love for um, different types of philosophy and reading, you know, understanding how people kind of try to rigorously think about the world. Um, I think there's a there's a, a gray area between pure, you know, liberal arts um, and uh, kind of some of the stuff that that people derogatorily call the humanities and hard sciences. Um, and I think there's a middle ground of like psychology, sociology, philosophy that, as a as a culture, we should pay more attention to. There is there a certain philo- uh, guiding philosophy, um, whether it's utilitarianism or Kantism, that has sort of stuck with you or you've taken a bit from? Uh, I've taken a bit from a bunch. I would say the two that I find most interesting and kind of want to continue studying in more depth uh, is Buddhism and Stoicism. Um, I self-identify as a Stoic um, and have uh, have been, you know, considered myself a practicing Stoic uh, since I was probably 21 or 22. Um, and I think there's a lot to be learned from Stoicism. I, you know, I, I often give people, uh, you know, copies of like Meditations. Uh, I think it's a really good book uh, to get started in. Um, I like some of the Stoicism. I, I like a lot of Stoicism stuff. I've written about Stoicism, um, and uh, so I think that's probably the the closest personal relationship I have. But I take a little bit from all, and I don't want to self-identify too much in one direction. Um, uh, but that's probably more my daily practice. How do you think about the concept of legacy if, if you do? I know you're only 29 and you're going to, you know, we're going to live forever, of course. So we're going to have to. But, um, you know, if you had to answer the question, uh, you know, what do you want people to say at your funeral? Uh, that's a good question. I have not. Uh, uh, I think my, my gut reaction is he was good. Um, and I think the, the, the obvious question from that is what does good mean? Um, but I think what's, what's kind of locked into that is... Um, there were people that I, that I affected positively. Um, you know, so he was good. Like uh, who's judging that, you know, it's, it's gotta be somebody that I made some sort of positive impact on. Um, and I think as I get older, I care less about this, the, um, uh, like the resolution of that impact. It doesn't have to be a billion people. It could be 10 people that I really affected well. Um, and you know, really like greatly influenced. Um, and so I think that's, that's, uh, that resolution, I, I have at, at twenty, I would have said it has to be. I have to change the world, 
Um, and I think now it's, I'm more comfortable with the idea of, um, you know, being a, a, a good family member and a good uncle and, uh, you know, a good boyfriend and, uh, and you know, a good community member, um, as being, you know, part of being good. Um, you know, uh, and then, you know, I'd like the impact that I make to be positive, um, both professionally and personally. So I'd say that's, that's kind of the biggest piece of it. Um, but honestly, I don't know what my legacy will be. Uh, I barely know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, so. Uh, I, it's, it's something I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about, but, um, my hope is that I'll be able to leave the world slightly better than I found it. Um, maybe even a little bit more than slightly. What's upcoming for, for Angelus more broadly? Um, so, uh, about, again, we talked about, I taught a class on angel investing, um, like, you know, a couple of years ago and I published a bunch of resources available for angel investors for free. It's at adviceforangels.com. Um, and I was just kind of, this was something I did cause I found it interesting. I like thinking about education and how to teach things. Um, and I was sitting with the Angelus folks and it's obviously very, very well aligns with some of the stuff that they're trying to do. So we decided to work together on a podcast, um, and some of the stuff around just kind of content for helping investors learn how to invest and when to invest and when should they be a direct investor versus maybe a, a backer in a fund or something like that. Um, so you'll see a lot more learnings come out of me on that. Um, we're starting by publishing a, a season's worth of interviews uh, as a podcast. Um, so over the next several weeks, you'll see uh, episodes start coming out, weeks and months. Um, we've interviewed people that I think are just absolutely brilliant and not necessarily the normal uh, you know, people that you hear on every Silicon Valley podcast. Um, and we go super in-depth. These are like hour to hour and a half long interviews that go really deep on you know, what does... Uh, you know, how do they evaluate a company or what mistakes did they make or what lessons have they learned? Um, and they're really like sharing trade secrets, which I think is just absolutely incredible. Um, so that podcast is probably the first place to start. Um, if you go to adviceforangels.com and sign up on the email list, I'll send an email notification for every episode that comes out. If you go to soundcloud.com slash angelist, uh, you can hear our first episode, which was kind of our pilot episode trial that we did with Rick Marini. Um, and he shares a bunch of his lessons in there. Um, and if you go to, I think it's uh, angel.co slash start, um, you'll see a bunch of resources that we, uh, I'll check that now because I don't want to give the wrong address. Um, you'll see a bunch of resources that we've compiled for, uh, for angel investors that, you know, they want to, you know, watch good videos or, or read good essays or just kind of dive deeper into the art of angel investing. And the, the one with Rick is, uh, is absolutely fantastic. So I'm excited to, to hear the rest of Thank you. Uh, and where can people find you? uh on uh, on twitter uh so my website is tyler.is and uh which i use for entertaining you know forward slash tyler.is slash slacking off tyler.is slash sending way too much email um and uh uh and on twitter i'm just tyler willis on every like big uh you know place that you can search for me i'm usually just at tyler willis cool tyler this is fantastic okay. and we'll talk soon cool all right man see you